family this is Dave on love director of public policy leaders of a beautiful struggle it's my man Lawrence Grand Prix director of research leaders of a beautiful struggle um, and so this is another one of those segments where we take some of the things we've talked about in the office and kind of expose it to the larger public and you know really the broad frame you know Lawrence for this conversation that we've been having are some of the ways that the left has the or progressives really have trouble speaking directly to black people you know, many of the issues that progressives say that they advocate for are things that presumably would most positively impact black people. One of the places that, you know, in our conversations, we feel like there's the least um, effective communication and advocacy from progressives is on the issue of gun violence, particularly in urban majority black settings. Um, it's a place where, you know, I find the way that they address those issues to be woefully inadequate, and I think explains a bunch of, you know, some of the electoral trends that we're seeing now that we'll talk about later on. But let's, let's, let's dive deep into um, the conversation, though, about the deficiencies in the, in, in the left and, and progressives' conversations about violence. And, you know, a lot of the mainstream conversations that I've observed are on this notion of abolition, so you have folks like uh, Mariam Kaba and her book, We Do This Till We Free Us. Um, there's an abolition one-on-one zine that she contributed to, among others, um, that I actually referenced in a piece that I wrote a year ago in, in kind of our criticism of the defund police movement. And, you know, what, what, what seems, to be, seems to me to be something that is so obviously absent is like a deep level of familiarity with just like the nature of gun violence, some of the like social, the psychosocial aspects to gun violence. I think harm and violence are talked about in abolitionist literature and discourse so broadly. You know what I mean? And it's like when you talk to working class black people that are dealing with gun violence in their communities, in their neighborhoods, it just, that, listening to that, the, the kind of, conversations that come out as a result of that, to me, don't seem to be reflected in the literature and discourse that we're seeing from abolitionists or even from, you know, people who don't call themselves abolitionists, but call themselves leftists or progressives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't I don't really see that. And, and it's concerning because, you know, if you're a black person living in a city like Baltimore, Philly, Detroit, you know, wherever you know, violence is a is a problem. And if you can't effectively address that issue, I imagine, I mean, it makes sense to me that black people would have a problem electorally mm-hmm. supporting folks who call themselves progressives given that kind of discourse. So, yeah, yeah what do you so, think about that? Um, I imagine for a lot of them, it's very hard for them to talk about it. They're worried about replicating conservative stereotypes. And so much of their social capital comes from online conversations and not actually engage with people on the ground. So in those online spaces, that is something you can get tagged with. That's what people can accuse you of. You almost risk losing social capital talking about this issue. And again, it doesn't seem like something they have 
a very deep, intimate understanding of the mechanics of. So it makes sense that they will avoid talking about it. And it's one of those things where I think working class black people, if you want them to buy into what you are selling them, you know, you want you want to demonstrate that you do have a degree of expertise about the actual problem. And they talk about the root causes, they talk about it in generalities, but they don't talk about it as if like they have a expertise that they're trying to sell people that they need to buy into that can address the problem. Um, and especially in the short term, because again, long term, and then we'll talk about it, get rid of poverty, theoretically get rid of gun violence. But if, if you're suffering now, show people that you are plugged into that suffering, that you care enough to give them solutions they can operationalize in their lives right now. And that's not what they're getting from a lot of the progressive spaces right now. So before we push forward on that, let's come back. One of the things you said was um, a lot of these folks are fearful of being tagged with supporting conservative talking points, which I think is something like conservatives have done a good job of co-opting certain things that progressives or leftists should be engaged with just in a different way. So I imagine, for instance, one of the things you're talking about is that the levels of violence that we see every day in urban black environments are as a result of certain attitudes, you know, psychological and social issues that impact black people in a particular way that doesn't impact other folks the same. And I imagine one of those conservative talking points that folks are trying to avoid is the notion that there's something inherently wrong with black people. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So te- tease that out because I think it's one of those things where it's like we have to be able to acknowledge the problems in our community, but we can do that in a way that doesn't lend itself to the kind of conservatism that leads into like the respectability approach to addressing these issues. Yeah, it's almost a joke at this point that conservatives love to talk about FBI crime data. And what FBI crime data will explore is the race of perpetrators and the race of victims. So black men especially are overrepresented in victims of gun homicide and perpetrators of gun homicide. And that's a point that you don't really see the left engaging besides the root cause, black people are more impoverished, black people are more subject to incarceration and things like that. But there are a lot of poor black, white people, and a lot of poor white people go to jail. And it doesn't seem like they have quite the same rates of gun violence. And rather than just ignoring that reality because you're afraid of replicating stereotypes, studying it and engaging it with specificity, if you're trying to appeal to people who, it's like you live in Baltimore, you see it. It's just you don't need no FBI crime data. It's just your reality. And so are you actually speaking to the reality of people that you're calling your base? Or are you trying to essentially deny that reality to make a more convenient political talking point? And I imagine I know one of the things that, you know, I've talked about and we've talked about in discussions about violence, particularly with people who are like on the ground practitioners that mediate conflicts and try to address violence um, and folks kind of proximate to that world is that when you look at the kind of societal propaganda that in many ways like it's an assault on the fundamental process of identity formation for people of African descent. And it's this Amos Wilson quote that I use all the time about how, you know, the phenomena of homicide in our communities is an externalization of a suicidal impulse, right? That when society tells you you're nothing, you're, you're worthless, you're pathological, you're inherently criminal, those are things that can project it outward. And for me, that's a sound argument that does not that does not require a belief in black people being inherently pathological, but in fact, acknowledges the larger mm-hmm. systems of white supremacy that will produce that kind of 
psycho-existential crisis for folks of African descent in our communities, and just given the other ways that, you know, material oppression impacts black people exacerbating that, to me that sounds like a sound explanation that when I talk to folks who aren't necessarily inclined to things like criminal justice reform, they hear this explanation like that actually makes more sense than what they're hearing from, again, so-called progressives on this issue. Yeah, and if you go back to the previous episode of In Search of Black Power, I have a conversation with Rasheen where I go over some of the data. I was stunned because, again, some of the folks who are watching might come out of the African-centered tradition, may have read Amos Wilson, but to really take what he said seriously and then do the data analysis on it, it's almost an exact uh, flip of the chart between white men and black men because white men commit suicide essentially five times more than they commit homicide. Black men commit homicide five times more than they commit suicide. Mm. So the actual rates of gun violence between black men and white men isn't all that different. It's that black men externalize that gun violence and white men are internalizing that gun violence. Mm. And rather than viewing that as an example of pathology, there are cultural ways to explain it where it's like, if you're in an environment, impoverished urban environment, people are trying to hurt you and your family. And you see yourself as maybe not wanting to off yourself, but to do something that can manifest as an act of protection, which unfortunately in those conditions sometimes means doing violence to another person. So rather than just pathologizing it and seeing it as inherently evil, understand the context of people's lives where they see that violence as protecting people they love and themselves. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not pathological. That's real. Mm-hmm. But people don't seem to have studied or thought about or really engaged that reality enough to be able to explain that argument that way. Mm-hmm. So all they see is well, it's almost like white men are doing a good job because they're only shooting themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. black men are shooting other people. It could be something wrong with them. We don't want to say that, so we're not going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. That's just not an effective approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really stunning data point. I remember watching a, a lecture from uh, Dr. Tyrone Powers. Um, it's a black man that came out of the FBI um, and exposed some of the racism in law enforcement. And one of the things that he talked about in a lecture was that he talked about the increase in, in suicide rates amongst black men, black boys in particular, and discussed it in the same way that you did as, as kind of an expression of the same same phenomena. Less, so, so one of the things that you and I have said a bunch already is the way that it gets reduced just to poverty. So let's delve into that a little bit more because I think because I because what I don't want people to come away from this conversation thinking is that you and I don't think that there is a connection between poverty and the kind of material oppression of black people and violence. And I think what both of us believe is there certainly is a correlation between the two, but that it does not explain the entirety, you know, of the way that violence happens in our community. And even, you know, when you talk to people who are doing an analysis of the homicides in Baltimore City today versus what they saw before, I think it's 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 it, I hope it'd be it's more clear to folks that a lot of the violence that's happening now is not so much connected to drug trafficking as it was in the past. Like a lot of the violence that we're seeing, at least here in Baltimore, are interpersonal interactions and relationships that just spiral out of control and lead to violence. That we're seeing a whole lot more of that. And a part of the, again, part of part of my concern with, again, some of the abolitionist literature and, and just progressives talk about violence is that even paying attention to that level of detail as to the nature of the violence that is actually happening and then crafting policy solutions 
that address the particulars of the way that violence is actually manifesting themselves. I think that's something that is important to look at. I know that you you've preliminarily looked at some of the stuff that that has happened in Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that might be an example of folks kind of actually looking at the actual nature of violence as it's manifesting itself and developing and being something that's more responsive. Do you want to say a little bit, um, mm-hmm. both in terms of this issue of what, like going deeper into not reducing it all to poverty, like what, what we mean by that, mm-hmm. and maybe talking a little bit about what you kind of preliminarily discovered about Newark's approach and what they've okay. done? Okay. Um, so I'll start it off with, so as a broad frame, there are people on the left that do say, oh, we do have concrete solutions. And that's increasingly being lumped into this frame of community violence interventions. A broad swath of usually nonprofits, usually tied to the public health system, mm-hmm. that have a p- public health approach, quote unquote, to violence prevention. So they do things like uh, give people cognitive behavioral therapy and redirect them to services if they are in violence-adjacent lifestyle. So that's one approach, the sort of intensive life coaching approach. And so programs like ROCA in Boston and Baltimore do that. There's also the violence interrupter approach that's been um, popularized in Chicago. People like the documentary, The Interrupters, tied to the public health system. And they do things like try to mediate conflicts in community. None of these things are inherently bad. But to set a frame before I get to Newark, there are some limitations of having it be so centered in the nonprofit industrial complex in the public health system. As I talked about in the previous episode, um, people get it when you talk about it in the lens of foreign countries and Western NGOs coming into other people's countries and taking over stuff. Mm-hmm. But they don't get it when the same exact thing happens here in America. Because mm-hmm. you have people like Bill Gates who basically runs the public health apparatus in a lot of uh, countries with his uh, philanthropic donations. And that's not wrong because it's like some conspiracy theory. The problem is that the lack of self-determination and the actual investment in the publicly controlled infrastructure of that country, they tend not to invest in that. They invest in vaccines, drugs, drugs made by private Western companies and NGOs they can control. So that's the critique of Gates overseas. It's not that he's evil and nefarious conspiratorially. It's that he has the methodology, a vision of what forms of healthcare are good that doesn't match up with the public infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So people talk about like indigenous healers and how they are often excluded from getting access to resources through Western NGOs because they're not deemed evidence-based or amenable to their forms of nonprofit control. So the exact same here, seeing it's operating here in America, in general, with the rise of public health approaches to everything, mm-hmm. but specifically within the context of violence prevention, people in the hood have been doing stuff like this forever. Like, not just the Nation of Islam, but yes, the Nation of Islam and community elders have been trying to mediate conflicts, broker gang truces. That was a very popular gang truce in the 90s between the Bloods and the Crips. We're going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these are indigenous technologies to our community that have not been the center, usually of the violent prevention efforts happening in other cities. And instead, you have like literal white epidemiologists who study tuberculosis. Like Slutkin, he's the guy who is credited with saying violence seems to be spreading just like tuberculosis was. And he studied tuberculosis overseas and brought that same methodology to violence prevention here in America. And real quick, I mean, that that really helps to solidify the argument as to how black people are rendered as inherently pathological. And that's exactly what my next point was going to be, is that, you know, I joke, it's like, if violence is the disease in America, who's patient zero? Mm-hmm. Who started it? 
and I say Christopher Columbus. But that's not the methodology that's being brought to most of this violence prevention programming. They don't have that larger contextual political frame that was baked in to not all, but many of the grassroots indigenous violence prevention methodologies in the black community. So what you get is essentially the community is pathological because they're doing violence to each other. Mm-hmm. And the solution is to separate people from community, mm-hmm. to take them out of their social networks, as opposed to putting resources into their social networks to be able to get them to do other stuff besides the stuff that drives them to violence. Mm-hmm. So it just drives you back into the white nonprofit industrial complex and essentially pathologizes community as a way to get the, get the murders down, mm-hmm. which we know isn't always about us even. It's oftentimes about real estate values. Right. <laughs> you can't gentrify a city if they have too many murders. Mm-hmm. So Newark had a violence problem. Um, Ross Baraka got elected. He's the son of Mary Baraka, a famous poet, black arts movement, um, black nationalist, pan-Africanist, the person who helped uh, MC the Gary Black Power Convention, had a grassroots movement in Newark. And they, I, when you read their documents about their violence prevention programming, they explicitly argue that the violence prevention work is an extension of that political grassroots work. So they don't say it's African-centered. They don't say it's like uh, radically in the African-centered tradition, but they do say it is stemming from a grassroots political tradition as opposed to a public health technocracy tradition. And what they did was Ross went to the actual person who helped broker, one of the people who helped broker the actual truth in the 90s between the Bloods and the Crips in L.A., who was already indigenously in his social network because his father was in Mary Brock. <laughs> and he was brought in, and he helped set up the nonprofits they have in Newark to do their community violence intervention at the independent nonprofit, right? So it's a essentially black-controlled, community-accountable nonprofit that has like a membership model that community members can buy into so that nonprofit's accountable to the community, and they do technical assistance for other violence prevention entities, and they, um, again, have had unprecedented results of their violence prevention work. So from around 2014 to about now, basically, the murder rate in Newark has dropped in half. And that's a result that cannot be claimed to be replicated in any other city that's adopted similarly robust, similarly framed violence prevention programming. Because that's what the leftists and some the liberals will say. It's like, we're already doing that. We do have the solutions. But the distinction between what's happening in Newark versus what's happening in other cities that claim to be doing the same thing, I think shows the distinction between having the infrastructure be built with community accountability and building upon indigenous violence intervention methodologies as opposed to literally bringing them from the colonial public health arrangements overseas, which is literally what the cure violence model stems from. So so let's... You know, one of the things that I think for some people is like kind of like an elephant in the room. When we look at, you know, gun violence in majority black urban settings, as you mentioned before, the majority of the victims and perpetrators are black men. And, you know, you know, we're in a moment where there's there's just a lots of complicated conversations about um, addressing the concerns of elements of the black community that traditionally have, you know, not received enough attention whether it's, you know, black queer folks, black trans folks, you know, black women. Um, and I think but I think one of the challenges, though, is that the analysis around black men specifically is something that I think is misunderstood in terms of when we look at this, you know, the, the study that black that people have done on black people. 
that there's an there's an aspect to the life of black men and how we're impacted differently in these larger systems doesn't account for. And I think the question of gun violence in majority black urban settings is a key place where this emerges. Because in many ways, when you talk about folks who are victimized by violence, what many of us would consider potentially the most extreme forms of violence, many of the victims you know, tend to be black men. Mm-hmm. And and so so I think and, and you know, it raises some concerns that I think are best articulated. Um, you know, Tommy Curry, mm-hmm. you know, has written a lot about this in his work on the man not. Um, I think there is something there. There's certainly something there in terms of how his analysis there shows up in the conversation around gun violence in many of these cities. And when I the, the stuff that I mentioned earlier the abolition one-on-one document. Um, we didn't talk about it, but even when you look at some of the literature on the Minneapolis ballot initiative around abolishing their police department, and you look at the literature that was used to justify and explain that particular initiative and just the discourse that's used, to me it, it seems as if the kind of, like if we're if we love black people and black men are victimized by this level of violence, then this is something that deserves particular attention. But again, it doesn't seem mm-hmm. that there's a willingness to deeply engage that in the way that folks are rightly engaging other aspects of the black community that need yeah. to be engaged rigorously. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to be that guy, but for a moment, I'll be that guy. I was reading about intersectionality and bell hooks in 2002. Right, so this is nothing new because this is something we, I got exposed to via debate. And in debate, you recognize that things are up for contestation. You don't just assume intersectionality has always forever been the dominant academic theory, because it hasn't. It hasn't even been always the dominant academic theory to interpret the multiplicities of oppressions that people face. Because I remember people talking about intersectionality, and then it's like, oh, well, there's this thing called multidimensionality, which is essentially a soft critique of intersectionality, not because we shouldn't take gender or sexuality into account, but they were worried that intersectionality, and I fear this worry has been borne out, can re-solidify solid identity categories by basically saying there's a static like black female subject, there's a static white queer subject, and not take into account that in different places, in different spaces, in different contexts of power, those intersections can operate differently. So-